good morning. Happy Easter. I was thinking at the back, I was like, boy, this group cleans up well, don't they? <laughs> I don't know what we were thinking. Uh, if you don't know me, my, my wife, her name's Katie, and um, we're going on vacation uh, in the middle of next week. We're going to go down to Florida and get some vitamin D in our cells. You need that from time to time. And I don't know what we were thinking, but we, we rent our house normally over the summers. Um, anyway, we put it on the market, and someone rented in April. I couldn't believe it. Uh, so we've had to like go like chickens with our head cut off, get the house all prepped for rental, and then we depart out on Wednesday. It's funny, like one of the things that we love about renting our house beyond like you know the side dough is. <laughs> You know, people get a taste of what we get to enjoy here year-round on the Cape. Often, if someone comes here from off-Cape and they haven't been here before, they ask the question, what do you recommend? And of course, this is like a beach destination, so we tell them about the nice beaches and that kind of stuff, but if you've ever done like an extended beach vacation, sometimes you're looking for a day trip. There's some cool history around here. Sometimes they'll ask the question, do you recommend we go see Plymouth Rock? <laughs> Let me just ask you, how would you answer that question? <laughs> well, my response is, well, sure, but, you know, prepare to be underwhelmed, <laughs> right? You know, if you've been to Plymouth Rock, you, you kind of go through this letdown experience because we've heard the history, we've read about the history, the pilgrims stepped off in 1620, and then our mind fills in the rest of the details. It must have been a huge rock. Well, let me ask you, why does it have to be a huge rock? Why can't it just be the first rock they saw when they got off the boat? Well, because it needs to be big, right? It's significant. It's interesting. We sometimes have our expectations let down because we expected something to be different. Uh, maybe this has happened to you in the last year. Someone raved about a restaurant, and then you get there, and you're like, this place did not live up to the hype. Or it was a vacation. You get to the vacation destination, and you're like, really? Seriously? Sometimes, though, it runs a little deeper. Sometimes it's more significant things like your career or a relationship. It just didn't go the way that you expected. I want to acknowledge something with you this morning. When I hear people process Christ, church, faith, God, and they're struggling in those departments, often I hear them express a letdown in expectation surrounding those things. Uh, there's a term that has emerged in the last five to ten years. The term is deconstructing. What is deconstructing? Well, it's the process of fundamentally dissecting and questioning the beliefs you grew up with. Uh, this is specific to Christianity in this culture. And even if you didn't grow up as a Christian or in church on a regular basis, you did grow up in a culture that was broadly considered itself to be Christian. So you kind of look out and sometimes you feel let down because you're like, you know, I know some Christians and they don't live like the Bible suggests you should live. Or for other people, 
it's more along the lines of, you know, I had some pretty legitimate, robust questions with regard to faith in the Bible. And when I asked those questions, either it was evaded or the answer was just kind of soft and flimsy. It wasn't satisfying. Maybe it's a different reason for others. I can only imagine. I've found that as I've had faith conversations with people over the years, it doesn't tend to be just outright disbelief. I don't hear people often say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection at all. I don't even believe Jesus existed. It tends to be a letdown in expectations. It's more nuanced than that. We're going to take a look at Luke's gospel. It's Luke chapter 24. If you don't know Luke, Luke is one of four gospel writers, and Luke was not present for any of the events that he writes about. He wasn't even a Jew. He didn't live in Israel during this time. So how did he become aware of this? Well, he was an investigative journalist. He read documents and had conversations with witnesses. Interestingly enough, the story that we're looking at this morning in Luke is specific or unique to him. This must have been an eyewitness conversation that Luke had with two disciples of Jesus. We pick up with the story, and we see Jesus interacts with two disciples who are in the process of deconstructing their faith. They're fundamentally questioning everything. They're like, did we believe the right things? Did we put all of our eggs in the wrong basket? We thought it would turn out differently. So let's pick up and read the story together. Luke 24, and the scriptures will be on the screen for you. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still and looking sad. Now you can kind of understand if you're putting yourself in the shoes of these disciples, why they are looking sad right now. They have really just lost everything in their mind. Uh, Saturday, for the disciples who followed Jesus, was probably the worst day in their living memory. On Friday, they had watched their teacher and friend and the one who they thought was the Messiah be crucified and ridiculed publicly. Saturday was like that day, I don't know if you've had a day of grief in your life where you were just so disappointed, so saddened that you just cried until you didn't have any more tears the disciples were fearful. They were running and hiding. And now, in this story, we pick up, and it's Sunday, and they're going home dejected. Often with the process of grief, there can be, after you get past the sadness, a sense of frustration or anger when things didn't go the way that you had expected. The text tells us that they were discussing together, but it's a stronger verb. It's more like they were debating, uh, like, passionately with one another. 
what is all of this stuff that we're hearing? We've been told that the tomb's empty. Is this because they stole the body of Jesus? Is this just another iteration of their cruelty to him? Are they trying to make us look even more like fools? So it's in the midst of this kind of debate that the scriptures tell us Jesus appears. He's walking alongside of them. And it says it's kind of like a supernatural occurrence because they don't even recognize who he is. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And he says, what are you talking about? So we pick up at verse 18. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he says to them, what things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So here's the deal. This is supposed to be a little bit of a humorous interaction, right? So they're having this conversation, talking about the one, talking with the one that the news is all about. I don't know if you've seen the show Undercover Boss, but this is like the religious edition of that. We have Undercover Jesus. What are you talking about right now? Tell me a little more about that. And Cleopas, one of the disciples, is incredulous. What have you been doing, man? Like, were you living under a rock? And so he just keeps playing it out. And he's like, well, what things are you talking about? Reminds me of a game that we used to play with my papa Wheeler. I have two brothers. My papa would take us to the store and sugar us up and then take us home and then refuse to live with the consequences of what he had done, <laughs> as a good grandfather would. But when we would go to the store and we'd be driving back home, suddenly he develops temporary amnesia. Oh my, I've forgotten how to get home. What am I gonna do now? Can someone help me? And that's when the chaos ensued. Three boys screaming out directions from the back, like, no, go left, no, you're wrong. You need to go right, no, go straight, Papa. Get them there. The truth is, we didn't have a clue how to get home. I mean, we had made this trip dozens of times with Papa Wheeler, but you know, we're kids. We're in the back of the car, punching each other in the arm, arguing with each other, playing. We're never looking out the window, paying attention because, you know, that's what Papa does. He knows how to get home. Why do I need to pay attention to that? I thought about that with respect to the disciples. You know, they looked at Jesus as this guru of sorts. He knew the spiritual direction. He was trying to give them indications along the way. He even told them about all the events that were to happen before they happened. And yet, they weren't paying attention. 
We actually see that in verse 21. It says significantly, but we had hoped. How often do those four words appear in our lives when our expectations are let down? Some of us have said those words about God, about faith, about the Bible. I hoped it would be different. Their hopes were misguided, misinformed, naive. Uh, If you look at the passage, it says that they had hoped that he would be the one who redeemed Israel. And their understanding of that redemption was not spiritual, it was physical. He would rule from Jerusalem, and then he'd bring in the promises of God to Abraham and David. They had no expectation of a Messiah who would suffer and die. If anything, that was immediately disqualifying in their worldview. So here we have something incredible. You have a description of two disciples who have every piece of information they need to find their way home. Think about us in the car. We'd made the trip dozens of times. We had seen the turns and the street signs. We had every piece of information They didn't need new information to arrive at a proper understanding of Jesus. They had walked with him. They had seen his authoritative teaching and his authenticating miracles. They heard him interpret the Bible. He told them three times in advance of this that this was just what was going to happen. And they had corroborating details. Women had gone to the tomb and they had found it empty. So they don't need any more information. What do they need? Faith. It turns out that when you say something just can't happen, your mind closes to it. If you tell yourself that the Messiah can't be crucified, if it's incredulous to you that the Messiah could be raised from the dead, you're never going to connect the dots. You're not going to move forward spiritually. I've come to believe this, that our skepticisms is the very thing preventing us from seeing what is right in front of our eyes. I've had people over the years say, Rob, is it okay that I have questions about faith and the Bible and God and spiritual things? And I say to them, of course it is. For faith to be reasonable, it must be legitimate. It must satisfy my reason. I come from a biological background. I interfaced with faith with a scientific mindset. I had very robust questions for the Bible. But when it turns into outright skepticism, well, then I can't move anywhere spiritually. I like what this author, Trevin Wax, says about our doubts and questions. He says, the last thing... I'd want you to do is suppress your questions and squelch your doubts. Instead, I hope you'll discover more questions and entertain more doubts. You heard me right. You need to doubt more. You need to question more. To be fair in your pursuit of truth, you should take those doubts and questions that you with laser-like focus have trained on Christianity and point them at the story you've adopted for yourself. If you truly deconstruct in a way that is authentic and honest, 
then your newfound faith must undergo the same level of examination as your older faith. Now, he's on to something. Often the historic Christian faith doesn't get a fair shake in our culture right now. It's almost like, okay, it's guilty until proven out innocent, but I'm not even going to ask a singular question of my own worldview right now. And that's just not fair. Now, if you give Jesus the opportunity, if you give scripture the opportunity, if you give God the opportunity, if you give faith the opportunity, I find that they stand on their own two legs quite well. But when you don't allow the other party to speak, when you don't listen to them, or when you listen to what someone else says about them, or if you only halfway listen to them, guess what? They can never change your mind. It's not possible. I've found that when people tell me their issues with Jesus, it oftentimes has nothing to do with anything he ever said or did. It's some kind of warping of something that people said that he said or something they said that he did. What if instead of taking that and just saying, okay, well, that must be it, if we went into the Gospels and just read him at face value, took him seriously? What if we started allowing him to speak? I think of Jesus' words to these two disciples in the next part of the verse. He says, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's have a little accountability moment. If you're a part of our church, I challenge you to memorize this passage. Did anyone memorize the passage? Any hands? I saw one. We have one saint in this whole room. That's incredible. I know, scripture memorization is challenging. Uh, we don't have good memories. Our cell phones and iPhones and all that good stuff have made us not even know how to get down the road without plugging in the GPS. But scripture memory is so significant and important. I like what G.K. Chesterton said. If something's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. And I'll tell you, for me, memorization is difficult. So there's my little guilt trip for the morning. Let's move on. So Jesus is talking to these disciples, and he's allowed their doubts and fears and frustrations and discontentment to come out. He's listened to them. But now, Jesus has a challenge for them. Let me just say this about Jesus. He is not a pushover. He's not. If you come at him with really hard questions, and I mean legitimately come at him, he will receive the hard questions, but expect him to push back with his own hard questions. Let me paraphrase him here for you. Okay, so you've come at me with your frustrations and your fears and your concerns and your worries and all of that. But let me ask you a question now. Have you been listening to the scriptures at all? You see, these scriptures that you say that you know, the entirety of the message is shaped to point to me. I like what Kent Hughes says about this passage. 
He says that they were divinely kept from recognizing Christ, so they would base their understanding of the resurrection squarely on the scripture and not experience. Hmm. Why is that? Is experience illegitimate? Absolutely not. Experience matters very much. I hope, in fact, that you have experience with God in your life that's very personal and deep and meaningful. But it turns out that Scripture is the core vehicle that God uses to activate faith in us. The core vehicle. Um, This leads us to ask some important questions of ourselves. As you think about this scripture, how do you understand this? Do you believe that this is God's word? Do you believe that this is true? Uh, Do you believe something totally different? Do you believe that it's full of errors and it's not really a trustworthy source of information that you need to look elsewhere for reliable information? You see, however you answer that question either is activating faith or it is kind of leaving you where you are spiritually. Because if this is true, then everything that it says matters. And if it's not true, well, then I just might as well throw it aside and move on with my life and do what I want to do. Scripture is the core vehicle that God uses to activate faith. There's a story earlier in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, where he describes this parable of a rich man who's in Hades, and he's speaking to Abraham. And why is he in this terrible place? Well, it turns out that He's there because he never acknowledged God with his life. He didn't have any faith towards God. How did that, you know, manifest itself in his life? Well, it manifested himself, itself in his life by him being, you know, rich and selfish and not caring about anyone else but himself. He was self-interested. So he lives this kind of bubbled life where he never sees the needs around him. So much so that there's a a poor man named Lazarus that is starving outside of his gates. He's covered in sores. And Lazarus is watching through the window as this man living in the lap of luxury is gorging himself with food and the scraps are falling off the table and the dogs are getting fed, but not him. He comes to the realization in Hades that that was not a good decision to live that way. So what does he do? Well, he kind of commands Abraham. He tells him, oh, send Lazarus, like Lazarus is some kind of servant. He still believes that he's over him. Send him back to my brothers. They can't wind up where I've wound up. Surely if someone comes back from the dead and says, you need to live a different life, you need to acknowledge God with your life, they'll believe. And listen to what Abraham says to this rich man. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced should someone rise from the dead. Hmm. Now, doesn't that sentence carry a lot more weight now in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus? If they are not willing to listen to Scripture neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So Jesus is telling these disciples that you start on the faith journey by recognizing the authority and the trustworthiness of Scripture. 
Why do we need scripture to understand Jesus? Well, because it all points to him. It tells us that he is God the Son. It tells us that he rose again from the dead. It tells us that everything that we need to be in right relationship with God centers on the person of Jesus. The scriptures has two great divisions. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. The New Testament tells us about Jesus, and then it looks back on him and says, how might we or how should we then live in light of Jesus? That's why scripture is core. It's God's core vehicle for activating faith. It's the firmest foundation there is. If you build faith on anything less objective than that, your faith can crumble at any given time should your experience or your emotions change. Let's finish out this story. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. But when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I want you to take a look at this picture on the screen. This is Rembrandt's first take in 1629 of the supper at Emmaus. Now, Rembrandt, as he was considering this scene, he wanted to focus on the recognition moment when they became aware that this was Jesus sitting at the table with them. How did they become aware of that? Well, there are different ideas around this. We don't really know. Many people think, though, that that detail about him breaking bread was significant, that they actually saw the scars on his hands. And then it was like a light bulb went off in their mind. And here, this first disciple, perhaps this is Cleopas. You remember his story at the beginning. He's incredulous that Jesus didn't know or this stranger didn't know about all the events that had transpired in Jerusalem. And now his eyes are bulging because he realizes this is the one that the news was all about. If you look here at the bottom of the screen, it's very dark as it comes through digitally, but there's the other disciple, and he's actually in a posture of worship, bowing at the knees of Jesus. You notice now a posture shift in the disciples. They move from a posture of skepticism to now a posture of persuaded. Let me ask you some big questions around your own life. Why is it that God wants you to believe in Jesus? Why does it matter that we believe in the Bible? What is this faith stuff really all about? We get a sense of it from this image that Luke's creating for us as Rembrandt captured in this picture. You see, faith is how we enter 
table fellowship with God. There's many different cultures in, around the world, as you know. I've been to many places around the world, and I've noticed that in each different culture, they have different ways of honoring and valuing relationships. Our culture, you know, we're in the cell phone age, and we send people texts, and we're like, hey, how are you doing today? And maybe we reply to them that day. Maybe it's the next day. And maybe we go out and we have dinner together or something like that. Other cultures, though, really place a lot of emphasis on the household hospitality experience. You come to someone's house, you have a full meal together, you spend hours around the table because it's about the people even more than it is about the food. That's the culture that Luke is writing in. And he's giving us this picture in this story that God is deeply relational. And he wants to be in relationship with you and with me, and he wants us to kind of sit at the table like we're friends together. That's why Jesus came. That's why we have the message of the scriptures. It's all pointing to the reality that we're not in right relationship with God, and God would go to the greatest lengths in order to restore that relationship. There's a great barrier between us, and it's our sin. And if you're like, well, what does that really mean to have sin? Well, it's fundamentally breaking God's moral code. You can reduce his moral code to two questions. Do I love God? And do I love other people as much as I love myself? And it turns out we've all fallen short. And so God sends Jesus to live the life we couldn't live, to die on the cross in our place. He becomes our substitute. Listen, do you know why you were created? Do you know why you exist? You were made to be in relationship with him, to love him, to know him, to enjoy him. That's that peace in your life that just feels like something's missing. And sometimes as I look out at culture, you know, people are just running every which direction to fill that void. They don't think they're good enough. They don't think they have enough self-esteem. That's not what it's all about. Listen to me. You were created in the image of God. You're precious, valuable. There's intrinsic value to who you are. There's nothing that you could do to change that about yourself. So the hole that's missing in us is that relationship with your creator. And you come into that relationship through Jesus. In fact, Christians have known that this relationship is not just about finding Jesus, it's about following him. It's a life with Jesus. It's learning to kind of incorporate God in my life in such a way that he's leading my life and I'm sitting under the teaching of Jesus and I'm living in a way that is pleasing to the relationship with him. I love how the disciples respond to their faith moment. They say, did not our hearts burn within us? What is that? Well, that experience, I want to suggest, is intense longing, finally finding satisfaction. 
You see it for the first time. You come to the realization that all of this stuff in the Bible and this good news about Jesus is really, it's good news for you. It's not just about the super spiritual and the squeaky clean and the polished. And some of you probably look up here at me and you're thinking, well, that guy is super spiritual. Let me tell you, you don't know my faith walk. You haven't lived a day in my shoes. I came to Jesus just like everyone else did, needy, need of grace, broken, longing for that relationship with God. And the Bible is saying this morning that he knows you and he's calling your name. You have to understand this about Jesus. Jesus is not just a series of teachings. He's not an abstract debate. He's not an inspirational ideal. He's a person. And he wants to have table fellowship with you. He wants to be in relationship. Well, how do I create this relationship or step into this relationship with God? The Bible says you do it through a faith commitment. What's a faith commitment? Well, I like to think of it as a series of realizations we come to. The first realization is I'm not God. I'm not master of my own faith. I'm not in control, and I can't forgive myself. I need a creator to forgive me. The second realization is that Jesus is God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He came and he died in my place. He rose again from the dead, defeating sin and death. And then the third realization is that I come to him in trust, entrusting myself under his care and his control. Can I ask you to do something with me this morning? Would you bow your head for just a moment? And even if this isn't something you're used to doing, just I encourage you, just humor me with this. Bow your head, close your eyes. We live in a world where your attention is marketed, where people make money on it. So it's a commodity. It's something precious that you can give to God right now in this moment. And if you're thinking to yourself this morning, you know, my heart's burning. I need this relationship with God. It's real. I'm coming to this understanding can start the relationship right now by coming to him in a prayer. You see, prayer is very relational. It's just talking to God. And I want to invite you to trust Jesus for the first time by following along with me in your heart, this simple prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins I want you to come into my life at this moment. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and control. Amen. Amen.